I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Uh, we'll be considering verses 14 through 30 this evening. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. As you recall, the last couple passages that we've considered from this Gospel of Luke, the point that Luke has been establishing is that Jesus has come as the second Adam. He came to do what the first Adam failed to do, to bring a people into life eternal. And so as, as we now begin to see Jesus enter into his public ministry as he teaches and into his synagogues, as he does uh, miracles and heals individuals, know that he is doing these things with the identity as the second Adam. I invite you to turn your attention now to the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. When Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Shaddai, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them, none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill, on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. One of the great experiences in this life is waking up the morning of a, the day of an event in which you have been looking forward to with great excitement and anticipation. Either saying verbally or at least thinking, today is the day. 
all the anticipation, the excitement which I've been building for years, months, weeks, whatever it may be, to finally reach its climax. Today is the day. And this might be, as you reflect on your own life, your wedding day, the day a child is born, uh, the first day of retirement, the first day of a well-needed vacation, the, the day you get your license. We all have such experiences in this life. In our passage this evening, Jesus is making a similar point. He's teaching us, he's telling us that today is the day. But the event that he's referring to is much, much greater than these earthly events that we experience in this life. He's referring to this era of salvation which has dawned in his coming. Today is the day of salvation, he's saying. And this is really the main point I want us to focus our hearts and minds on this evening. With this coming of Jesus, this era of salvation has dawned. Today is the day of salvation. I'd like to consider uh, two points this evening. We'll consider the fulfillment of Jesus, and then we'll consider the response to Jesus. So the fulfillment of Jesus and the response to Jesus. You'll notice that at the beginning of this passage, Luke tells us that Jesus has been going around to various places and synagogues in the region of Galilee, and he's been, he's been teaching. And no doubt he's been gaining a, a certain reputation as a, a, a learned teacher, one who teaches with authority. And now Luke focuses in on this, this one event as he goes to Nazareth, which again was his hometown, and he teaches in, in this synagogue. In fact, in verse 16, we read this very thing. We see that Jesus went, went to the synagogue of Nazareth, or in Nazareth, on the Sabbath day. And no doubt this likely was the synagogue that he grew up going to as a boy. Week in and week out, as he attended Sabbath. And I think this is an important detail not to miss. You'll notice that as was the custom, the habit, Jesus went to the synagogue on, on the Sabbath. And the fourth commandment, which calls us to set apart the Sabbath day as holy by particularly worshiping God with his people, that's an abiding principle of God's moral law. And we see Jesus here practicing that. He says he went to the Sabbath, went to the synagogue each, each Sabbath day. We as the New Covenant Christians we see throughout Acts say we attend corporate worship on the Lord's day. And this synagogue service that Jesus attends, we uh, scholars know a fair bit about what these services looked like during this time. And these, these services, as I mentioned earlier in the, the liturgy, involved the people of God reciting the Shema, so the first creed, Deuteronomy 6. They would recite this each Sabbath day. Uh, they would read prayers together. They would sing psalms together. The psalms were the inspired songbook of God's people. They would read portions from the law. They would read portions from the prophets. And then they would have someone come up and teach from, from these readings. And they would end with a benediction. You'll notice that this basic structure is very similar to New, New Testament worship, similar to our own worship. 
And particularly here in our passage in verses 17 through 19, we see that Jesus is the one who takes up this scroll, the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads and gives an exposition on this text. And we don't know if Jesus got up and he picked this text, or if this in God's providence was the text appointed for that week. Because they follow a lectionary. So there would be passages appointed for each week throughout the year. We don't know, but it could have been been either one. And boys and girls, notice that Jesus was reading from a scroll. At this time, books were not invented yet. And so the the people of God had the Old Testament scrolls. They were either dried out animal skins, so leather, that would be uh, sewed, pasted together to form a big, long scroll. Or they would be um, they would use a, a plant called papyrus. And they would dry out these reeds, and they would paste them together, and it would form a sort of a paper, and they would paste this long enough to get a scroll. But you know how big Isaiah is? There's 60-some chapters. And so it was always in one scroll that they would have to unroll to read from. And here we see Jesus reading from Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. And the prophecy, this prophecy that he, he reads from Isaiah 61 has to do with this coming servant of the Lord. That's what Isaiah is prophesying about. This coming servant of the Lord, this anointed one, this, this Christ. That's what Christ means. It's the anointed one. This anointed one who is going to proclaim good news to a people who have experienced exile. And in verse 21, Jesus tells us, confirms to us, that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Today, this has been fulfilled in your name. Jesus is the one who Isaiah was writing about 700 years ago. From the time time when Jesus is speaking here, from the time Isaiah was written, this is 700 years. And Jesus is now on the scene saying, wow, this era has now dawned. I'm here. This, this has been fulfilled in your midst. I think as well as some moments on the meaning of this, this prophecy and how Jesus has, has fulfilled this passage from Isaiah. And there's an idea in uh, when, when theologians, pastors, scholars do biblical theology, they study God's unfolding plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. There's this idea called the prophetic idiom, which is a very helpful category to help us understand prophecy. So when, and you'll see this, and I explain it to you as you read, your, the, uh, read for yourself the prophets of old. When the prophets would speak about the coming age of salvation, they would speak forward to new covenant realities and beyond, they would speak about those future reality, uh, realities using the language stock of their own day. They speak about the new covenant, they speak about the coming of Christ using Old Testament language, the idiom of the Old Testament. You know, sort of like, you watch a movie that's made decades ago, and it's a movie about the future. Oftentimes when you go back and watch those movies, you recognize, oh, that's just an 80s or 90s version of the future. They're using the idiom that they know to think about the future. And that's what the prophets did. They were using the language of the Old Testament, the language of the people in the Old Testament would have been very familiar with to speak about these future coming realities. 
And this is very important to understand as we, we want to uh, under, uh, understand the true nature of, of this prophecy and its fulfillment, what Jesus means by saying it's come to fulfillment. Notice who this anointed one is, is, is speaking to. Isaiah says that he's proclaiming this good news to the poor, to the, poor the captive, the blind, the oppressed. Very sociological terms, right? The poor, the oppressed, the blind. In the original context, this would have made sense for people who have experienced God's judgment, experienced exile, experienced captivity to the Babylonians. It would have made sense for them. And this is really, so we need to ask ourselves, how, how is Jesus interpreting this? So Jesus is saying, he's come to proclaim good news to this segment of people, the poor, the oppressed, the blind. Well, Jesus is interpreting this in a spiritual manner. He's coming to announce good news, the gospel, the gospel of himself, to those who are spiritually destitute, those who are poor, those who are spiritually blind, those who are captive to their own sin, the devil, and this world, those who have been oppressed. He's come to announce good news. This is one of the misconceptions of Paul. People were expecting him to come in a very literal way to bring about a renewal of this Davidic kingship and gain control from the Romans and to actually deliver those who felt captive to the Roman Empire. He came about something much, much greater. He came good news to deal with our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is spiritual in nature. And this, po- this point is important to make because this text such as, as these have, have been often cited, especially in the last hundred years, by progressive-leaning churches to try to say that the church should be promoting as you know, the fourth mark of its existence, social justice call, uh, social justice initiations, or, or uh, politics. We have to ask ourselves, what was the mission of Jesus? Was he coming to bring some sort of social utopia renewal uh, to Judaism, the Roman Empire? No, he was coming to bring something much greater. Good news that ensured that they would in one day attain the new heaven and the new earth, which is the truest utopia one could ask for. I think this is informative for how we think about the mission of the church. The mission of the church is aligned with the mission of Jesus. The mission of the church is to proclaim the good news of the gospel, this good news that Jesus, here in our passage, is said to have fulfilled. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Churches as as an institution, as a spiritual institution, given spiritual weapons of the law and the gospel. That's what uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is another Reformation confession that's similar to the same in doctrine as as our own confession. It says that the church, the institutional church, is to deal with those things which are spiritual or ecclesiastical, not to meddle with with civil affairs. And many people in Jesus, they didn't get this point. 
They were expecting Jesus to come in a very earthly, dominant way. Not as a servant. They were expecting a glorious king like that of David. Also notice this relationship with the servant of the Lord being anointed to proclaim. Right? We see that in this text. He's anointed to proclaim this message, this good news of the gospel. I think there's an analogy here with Christ's under-shepherds. If Christ is the true shepherd, what about the under-shepherds? The under-shepherds have a similar task. They've been anointed or set apart or ordained to proclaim, to minister the word of God. It's a very important uh, point to make that myself, other Korahites, other elders and pastors, their authority lies in ministering the word of God. And once the word of God ends, their authority and in some ways, it's similar to that of a teacher. When a teacher or professor gives you a syllabus, the syllabus is a purview of, of their authority. If they want to go outside the bounds of the syllabus, they have no right, they have no jurisdiction to be there. They can't claim to have the authority to relegate your soap somewhere. This is a very important concept in the church. I have no right to, to say what hobbies you should or shouldn't have or what color pants you need to wear or not to wear. This is Christ anointed to proclaim. His under-shepherds have been anointed to minister that word, that gospel. The end of this quotation, verse 19, we see that this servant of the Lord proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. This is a reference to the year of Jubilee that the nation of Israel would celebrate every 50th year. So every 50th year they would have this, this, this whole entire year that was set aside. And in this year it would be a, re, a redemption. So debts would be canceled. If you lost your land during the last 49 years because you couldn't make payments or, or for whatever reason, your land would be restored. If you became a slave because you couldn't make your payments, you would regain your freedom. It was a time of redemption, liberty, and freedom. It was indeed a year of jubilee. Every 50th year, the nation of Israel would celebrate this. Jesus here is telling us that he is the fulfillment of that year of jubilee. You read about the year of jubilee in Leviticus 25. That is to say, we are living in the perpetual year of the Lord's favor. That is, the day has dawned. This is the, your wedding day morning, as it were. The day your child is born. The day your vacation has arrived. Today is the day. The new creation has dawned. That's what Jesus has brought. The new creation. This new creation has dawned. Uh, it's been brought about. With the coming of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit into our hearts, He gives us new life. And yes, the, the consummation of this new creation will come about in the new heavens and the new earth that we're still looking forward to. But the new creation has dawned. Thus, we live in this, this tension because we still live in this present evil age, but yet we have a foot in the world to come. The tension of these two ages, the new creation, and this present evil age. We live in the perpetual year of the Lord's favor. And this is why the Lord's Day 
need not be a, a drudgery. This is a celebration. This indeed is a holiday. This is when we celebrate the fact that we are living in a perpetual year of the Lord's favor. That this is an age of jubilee. It's on the Lord's day. As you know, well, I've just got done explaining here what uh, Jesus has done. This is the gospel. Like, this is the announcement of the gospel. Oftentimes we read through scripture, read through the gospels, we come across many passages like this that remind us of what Christ has done in his life, his death, his resurrection. It's easy for us just to become uh, very accustomed to this and, and kind of shrug it off and say, yeah, I know that. And it's easy for us to adopt, at least unconsciously, an attitude that I think is very prevalent in our, in our broader evangelical world where the gospel really is for you when you enter the Christian life and the gospel is beneficial if during your deathbed you need to be comforted or assured, but in this big time in between, the gospel is sort of irrelevant. You just need law for the Christian life in between. Much to the contrary, you need to be continuing to hear this good news over and over as you have taken. A good analogy that I once heard, which I think is a helpful way to, to, make, to make this point, is break down of marriage. For those of you who are married, imagine you telling your spouse one day, you know what, honey, I told you I loved you on our wedding day, and if I have the opportunity, I'll tell you again when one of us are on our deathbed. But in the meantime, no, nothing has changed. I would imagine that that conversation wouldn't go well, and your marriage would not change. Basic to a, uh, a healthy marriage is the idea that you show your spouse love and commitment through actions and through words. Apply that logic to our, our relationship with the Lord. We, we need to be reminded constantly of God's love for us in Christ. The basis of this relationship and the security that we have because of Christ. Something we need to know and be reminded of each and every day. It makes sense because, as we just got done hearing in the Declaration of Law and the Gospel early in the service, the law is the standard of the Christian life. But what is the motivation? The motivation is that reminder of our God's commitment to us because of Christ, and the good days and the bad days. That's what motivates us to obey, especially when it's difficult. So you have that gospel at the very center of your consciousness as you go out into this world, into this present evil age, or the pilgrim. Well, Jesus has brought fulfillment. Now, what should our response be to this fulfillment? This leads us to uh, my second point, where we see the Nazarene's rejection of Jesus, which also is an example of how we should not respond. So the response to Jesus. If you look with me in your Bible at verse 22, you see the beginning of the response. And all the Nazarenes spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? These people were initially impressed. Oh, this guy 
guy's quite learned. He speaks well. But their amazement, their wonder, seems faded into doubt. Is not this Joseph's son? The, the Joseph we know, the carpenter, who's from Nazareth, this small, un, uh, um, unimpressive city? Something's not adding up here. This, this is Joseph's son. We must be missing something. We doubt it. We respond unbelief. Is this not Joseph's son? One author says, um, familiarity breeds contempt. Not their own people. No, no one from us can, can be someone great and renowned. And Jesus, recognizing their unbelief, recognizing their response, and knowing what their next uh, thought was going to be, uh, he anticipates it before them. He says in verse 23, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, a proverb that was known in, in many, many Jewish and Greek Writing, physician, heal yourself. What he means by this proverb is that when you think of a doctor or physician, it, it would seem natural that they would first focus on healing themselves if they were injured or sick, save themselves, so that they can then save others. Right? Before they focus on saving others, they first Make sure that they themselves can function so that they can help and save others. The analogy is, is that they're not too happy that Christ has been going to Capernaum and other regions, focusing on them and neglecting his, own, his, home, his hometown, neglecting the Nazarene. And Jesus goes on to defend his, 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 his reason for this. And he gives examples. He says, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. He points to Elijah, Elijah, from the Old Testament. With Elijah, Jesus is referencing this famine in the land, and this famine which came because of Israel's own unfaithfulness, their own unbelief to God. And during this time, God blessed this Gentile widow, Zarephath, and bypassed the, his own people, the Israelites. And Elisha, the second king, beginning of second kings, we read about this narrative where Elisha heals uh, Naaman, who is a Syrian Gentile, who had leprosy, but didn't heal the Israelites, who had leprosy. Both these instances, the prophets focused their, their thing outside the people of God. They focused their attention on, on these, these Gentiles. And Jesus here is equating the Nazarenes who rejected Jesus with the people of Israel. They didn't believe. They responded unbelief. Jesus is moving on, focusing his attention elsewhere. And this no doubt angered the Nazarenes, verses 28 through 30. Any sort of wonder or amazement they had dissipated. They were outraged. Likely they were thinking, this guy's a false prophet. They drove him out of the synagogue and sought to throw him off, uh, off a cliff. But it all stems back, his response all stems back to the unbelief of the Nazarene. That's why Jesus focused his attention on him. Is this not Joseph's son? Is this not Joseph's son? Brothers and sisters, how many times a day do we respond? 
by saying, is this not Joseph's son? Can this story of this Jewish man 2,000 years ago really have any practical relevance in my life today? Can this story actually help me overcome the vices in my life? The areas in life where we feel captive. We feel unable to break out of those patterns of sin. We feel spiritually destitute, oppressed. Will this story actually make me a child of God whereby God so watches over me that nothing comes by chance, but everything, everything comes to us, comes to me by following hand? Can this story actually resolve conflicts in my life? Those times where I may feel oppressed or I myself may be the oppressor? Do you believe this gospel? It's not only the, God, the power of God and justification it gives you the, the righteousness of God, it gives you forgiveness of sin. It's the power, the power of God and sanctification. The gospel through the Spirit is presently in your life if you have faith and is working in you that which is pleasing to God. Paul says that he will, God will complete this good work which will be done in each one of all hearts. Do you believe that? Do you believe that because of the gospel that Christ so watches over you as our catechism says not a hair can fall from your head apart from his will. Which would mean that you are here right now this evening in your current season of life and present circumstances because of God's will for you which is for your good and his glory. Do you believe that? Or do you respond by saying, is this not Joseph's son? Well, brothers and sisters, today is indeed the day of salvation. Just as when you wake up the morning of a big event, that realization calls for a certain appropriate so today is not only the day of salvation, but it's also the day to believe. To believe in such a way that leads us to a life of love for God and love for those around us. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, sending your Son, Christ, into this world. We thank you that he indeed is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies of old. He is the, the climax of the great longing expectations of your people throughout the Old Testament. We thank you that he has indeed brought this new era, this era of salvation, in which we are now presently living in. Right? We are in the perpetual year of the Lord's favor. And Lord, may you remind us day by day of your goodwill towards us because of Christ. And may that good news motivate us each and every day to obey your law and walk in all manner of good works. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.